Turn in your Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter number 4. 1 Peter chapter number 4. Everybody told me the message was real brief this morning, so I'm going to have to do something about that. And, uh, <clears throat> but I, I I guess I was just tuckered out, amen? And uh, you put 5,800 miles on a car in two weeks, you'd be tuckered out too, amen? But we're, uh, we're thankful to be home and uh, thankful for what God has done in our life and is doing in our church. Let me say, I, I didn't take time to say it this morning, but how thankful I am for the men that stood in for me uh, while I was gone. It's a great peace of mind to me to know that uh, the church is is doing well and, and thriving. And uh, I don't want you to be doing too well without me. Somebody say amen to that, but, but good enough. Amen. And um, I made a statement in men's prayer breakfast that it's good to go to a church where uh, when the pastor isn't there, people don't quit and they don't fuss and they don't fight. And if they do, they know better than to tell the pastor about it. Amen. So I'm thankful for that. First Peter chapter number four. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. First Peter chapter four, verse number one. Word of God says, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that you take the word of God. Lord, it's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And when the Holy Ghost of God wields it, it is effective and meaningful in our lives. And so we pray tonight that He would have free course and liberty to deal with us according to Thy will and after Thy good pleasure. And we'll be sure to thank You for, Lord, we know that if, if, our will, if Your will is done in our lives, uh, we know that we'll be the happier, the better for it. We know that You'll receive more glory from it. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, sometimes when I take my text and read it, I'll read a little more than what I'm going to preach on, and then sometimes I get tempted to preach on the parts I wasn't even going to preach on. But I want to confine us tonight to verse number 7 and 4. And I want you to notice, whenever Peter is speaking about the work of God amongst the people of Israel and how that God has brought them into a greater awakening and understanding of who God is through the cross of Calvary, how that they have come into the fullness of the comprehension of God through the person of Jesus Christ, talking about how God has worked amongst them as a people and as a nation. In verse number 7, he then begins to switch gear. 
and he sort of almost, it's almost like he sort of smacks them with truth, arrests their attention back to this present moment, away from the history lesson that he's been telling, and now into the practical truth that he has to give them. And he uses a phrase to sort of snap their attention to. He says in verse number 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a powerful statement to me. The end of all things is at hand. What exactly does the Holy Ghost mean whenever Peter pins this down? What does he mean by the end of all things? Well, I would say this, that the phrase the end of all things, basically we could make three statements about it or three applications of it. Let me say number one tonight, that there is a theological application of this phrase. I was just counting up in my mind the times, and of course that's an imperfect process, but the times in the Bible that it refers to the days we're living in as the last days. Let me say that the phrase last days in the Bible does not necessarily relate to how many calendar days are left, but rather where you and I sit in regards to the calendar and program of God for mankind. You remember, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, it opens this way by saying, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners uh, spake unto our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His dear Son. In other words, it's saying this, that we are living in a time where the only thing left is the end. Can I say to you, listen, there ain't going to be no more saviors come along. He is the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. Uh, there's not going to be any more programs, economies, systems, or forms of worship. Uh, I, if we want to speak about dispensations in a theological sense, we could refer to the millennial kingdom as a dispensation. But even in that time, hey, it ain't going to change who it is that's sitting on the throne of men's hearts. It's going to be the Lord Jesus. In other words, we're not waiting for the next great phase. We are at the end of all things. Therefore, what you and I are going to do with Christianity in Christ we better do now because there's no changes coming along that are going to adjust our perspective and way of living. There is a theological application. When the Bible speaks of us being in the last days, this know that in the last days perilous times shall come. Uh, Paul's not speaking about sometime way in the future, but he is saying, he says there's perilous times even right now. He was talking about the church age, this dispensation that we are in, and he was saying this, God's wrapping up this whole program that He's been dealing with mankind through. I think sometimes we have a very limited scope in how we view things, and certainly in your uh, perspective and in mine, living here in the West and in America, it's hard to imagine a world where America doesn't exist, and yet we've just, for some 200 short years, uh, our world or our nation has been in existence. I'm saying this, this world's been spinning a long time, and God's been doing a lot of things, but it's all spinning down to a close now in these days that we're living in. How should that change and inform the way that we behave and live? I, I want us to notice not only there is a theological application, but let me say, this is true for every one of us, there is likewise a practical application. Because here's the truth of the matter. Uh, the end of all things is upon us in the sense that God is bringing to a close His program of redemption for mankind. And uh, He's bringing to culmination all of this plan of redemption that He's been performing. But let me say in your life and mine, that it is equally true that in the next day, two days, three days, the end for us could be at hand. 
the Bible tells us that no man is uh, knows what tomorrow may bring forth. We're not promised another day on this earth. We are given only the present and made no promise of having any future whatsoever. I think we over the past couple years have had to come to terms with this in a real way. I think we've learned that even though we have all said that we know we could die at any moment, actually coping with the notion that our life could be brief, that our time could be short, has been a shocking thing for many people. But i got news for you. Hey, listen, no matter what happens in the wide world around us in terms of virology or in terms of social chaos or social unrest, every single day there's people die that leave this world to step off into eternity and one day it's going to be your day and one day it's going to be my day and we don't know when that's going to be. We right now could be sitting at the end of all things concerning our life. Hey, today could have been the last opportunity you'd ever have to go to church. Aren't you glad you did? Let's talk bad about those that didn't. You want to? Aren't you glad that you spent it in the house of God? Hey, listen, tomorrow may be the last opportunity you ever get to give out a gospel track. The day after that, it may be the last opportunity you ever get to share the gospel with somebody. We don't know when the end is coming for our lives. So guess what we do? If we really care about it, then we live like every day could be our last day. The end of all things is at hand. So there's a theological application. There's a practical application. And that produces, and maybe I'm twisting the word application just a little bit here, but I would say this, that there is an instructional application of this phrase. There is the notion of what it means in the broader scope of God's plan. There is the meaning that it holds for your life and mine every day that this could be the last day that we live. But then Peter takes that and begins to charge us with certain responsibilities in life. In other words, if we really believe that Jesus can come back at any moment, we announce it every service at Wall Ridge. I hope we don't announce it so much we quit believing it. I've got a notion that it ain't the announcing of it that would make us quit believing it. Hopefully the announcing of it is going to keep us believing it. Amen. Uh, But uh, we all would say Jesus could come back at any moment. We would all say that this could be our last day. What will that look like in our life if we really believe that? I want you to notice five things that Peter says in light of this. And then we'll close and go eat some breakfast food. Because that's what we need this time of night, isn't it? Notice what it says in verse number 7. Peter says... But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now one preacher said this, that the pay attention to the therefores, the therefores are therefore a reason. It's a connecting statement. And when Peter says, be ye therefore, he's saying, hey, if this is true, if we believe that here we sit at the tail end of God's uh, prophetic calendar, at the tail end of God's program uh, for humanity, if, if we believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, if we believe that even if all that was in dispute in our minds, unsettled in our hearts, we would all have to admit that death could come for us for any moment. So if that's true, here's what we ought to do. Let me say number one tonight, we ought to pray without playing around. That's what he says. He says, be ye therefore sober. Now, when he's talking about being sober in a biblical context, I don't think it's necessarily being spoken of in juxtaposition to being intoxicated. Although, let me say this, God's against being intoxicated. God's against drinking even if it don't intoxicate you. I'm against drinking healthy stuff, but God's against <laughs> uh, God's against it. He Listen, he says not touch it. He says not put it to your neighbor's lips. 
I don't know how many ways God has to say it for us to accept it. <laughs> God is against it in every way, shape, fashion, and form. But when He uses the term sober here, it's not in respect of saying don't be intoxicated. Rather, it means an, a clarity and an awareness of mind. My first introduction to the idea, I didn't grow up in a drunkard's home, or if I did, he hit it well, I don't know. But I didn't grow up in a drunkard's home. Some of you probably did. My first exposure to the idea of a man being drunk was on Andy. And it was Otis. It was Otis. Uh, did you ever notice, I, if you go all through, some, somebody said this to me the other day, I mean, about rock my world. You go, you go all through Andy Griffith, and everybody in Andy Griffith is single except for Otis, and he's the drunk. Isn't that funny? Well, what are they trying to tell us? Ain't nobody married, Corey, but Otis, and he's drunk all the time. My first introduction to the idea of, of, of being intoxicated was, was watching Andy Griffith and seeing Otis, and he'd be seeing pink, uh, you know, elephants, and, and he'd be trying to wrestle down a dynamite-loaded billy goat, and uh, he'd be doing all kinds of different things. And, and, and the, the, the projection was that this man, because of alcohol, he's not in his right mind. He's seeing things, Brother Charlie, that ain't there. He's missing things that are there. The world looks different to him than it really is. And I'd say this, that we live in a day where there are a lot of philosophical and ideologically drunk Christians that are viewing the world through a lens and prism of not what it really is. You say, preacher, how can I get a right estimation of what the world looks like? Well, here's what God did. Uh, He gave us a right perspective and worldview right in that inspired book right there that we can read and adopt and embrace and believe and obey and understand. To have a biblical worldview is to have a correct worldview. Therefore, he tells us that we are to sober up and to be serious and to have the right perspective of the world around us. In other words, we have to recognize that there's dangers that are in front of us. A drunk man doesn't recognize the dangers that are set before him. We need to recognize there are certain immutable truths that cannot be changed or bent or subverted unto our way of thinking. And a drunk man, uh, he bends the truth and bends perspective and bends reality. In other words, it's saying this, we need to wake up and get serious about this thing of living for God. And I'd say if we really believe today could be our last day, we'll be serious about it. No excuses will be enough to stop us from serving God. No no excuses will be enough to cause us to slack our hand. If we really believe that the end is at hand, we really believe this could be our last time, it would produce in us a seriousness, a soberness that would change how we live. You probably remember back to 9-11. I was young whenever I was a teenager when 9-11 happened, but I've had preacher friends and it was probably the same to you. Whenever 9-11 took place, uh, people flooded into churches. Every church had a record Sunday the week after. They'd have to open up churches in the middle of the week just for folks to go pray. Why did people do that? Because they recognized our country was under threat. They thought that it could uh, result in the end of their life and they were troubled and they were worried and they were burdened. In other words, they believed that to some degree, the end was at hand. And therefore, they got serious about it. Now, how is it that you and I as Christians could say, we believe the end is at hand, but we're no more serious than we are? We need to be serious. It gives us a right perspective. And then what does that produce in us? Well, he says this, Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. It'll give us not only a right perspective, but a rigorous prayer life. I'll tell you this, if we really believe things are as bad Well, how do I phrase this? I want to say this the right way. I have a hard time believing people are upset when they're not praying more. I'll just go ahead and say that. I I, I hear people being upset. 
But I have a hard time believing we're really that upset when we ain't praying more than we are. What does he say? He says to watch, to be aware, to be vigilant, to observe. But he says, what should that produce in us? He does not say watch unto complaining. He does not say watch unto anxiety. He does not say watch unto protest. He says watch unto prayer. For the people of God, once we get serious about this thing of living for the Lord and we recognize this could be our last day, it will produce in us an urgency about our prayer life that will cause us to engage seriously with it. I would say this, that prayer... You, I'm not going to like what I'm about to say any better than you are, so let me just warn you of that. But I would say this, that prayer is probably the great metric for the depth and sincerity of our Christianity. For me as well as for you. You want to know how good of a Christian we are, how serious we are? Look at how much we pray. That's the bellwether. That's the weather vane. That's what determines. That's the acid test. And the more serious our prayer life gets, it's because the more serious our perspective is getting, the more sober our heart and our mind is getting. If we really believe, if we really believe the end is at hand, we're going to get serious about things and not just sit around on the whining brigade, on the protest brigade, upset, tore up from the floor up day in and day out. But if we really believe it's a problem, we'll take it to the only one that can change it and ask Him to intervene. I would say, number one tonight, it would produce in us that we would pray without playing around. Look at verse number eight. He says this, and above all things, now that's how God says it. I didn't say it that way. God said it that way. Above all things, what? Go out and whoop all of them that make you mad. Is that what he says? Above all things, send letters, make phone calls, sign petitions. Above all things, go burn things down and make your voice known. He says, above all things, if you really believe this is the end, if you really believe that things are falling apart, he says, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. I'd say this, that if we really believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, if we really believe our life could end at any moment, if we really believe that we're sitting at the tail end of God's program for humanity, then it ought to produce in us that we love without limit. Not guarding ourselves. Not waiting till all the tests come in on who's worthy of our patience and long-suffering. But rather that we love folks, even when it may not pay off for us. Even when it may not be easy to do. Even when we don't feel as though they are worthy of our love, doing everything we can to try to show love towards Him. Notice what he says here. He says, above all things, have fervent charity. Now, fervent means feverish, right? Fervent means passionate. But I thought it was interesting, when you look at this word, it carries with it the idea of something being stretched out. You say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, that elastic around your old drawers, that's stretched out. Somebody say amen. Stretched out. And he says of our love that it ought to be stretched now, one of the things that happens when something is stretched, it's it's thinned, it's warped, it's changed in its uh, in its uh, dimensions and its dynamic. And I would say this: usually, when you stretch something out, it becomes a little more taut and tense. So, in other words, the way we ought to be loving people in these days, if we believe it's the last days, we ought to be loving them to such a degree that it exposes vulnerability in our hearts and in our lives. We ought to be loving them beyond what is considered the acceptable parameters of how our love ought to be towards one another. In other words, there's going to be times that for you to love people, they're going to be unreasonable and you're going to have to love them anyway. There's going to be times they're going to create tension, but you're going to have to love them anyway. 
And you say, well, preacher, why is that? Well, after all, if this could be the last day we live, wouldn't we want it to be said that we did everything we could to show the love of God towards someone's life? I see the elasticity of our love. But then notice number two, the capability of our love. He says this, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Isn't that interesting, that phrase, cover the multitude of sins? I don't know about you, but that don't sound very New Testament to me. If you know anything about uh, sin in the Old Testament, about uh, propitiation, about redemption, about atonement, you know that in the Old Testament, under the Jewish system of worship, whenever they went and shed the blood of animals, that produced an effect that the Bible calls atonement. Now, atonement means to cover something up. It's Hebrew word kafar. Same word that's used, by the way, whenever Moses uh, was put in the ark of bulrushes and they pitched it about with slime and sealed the water out. Same word that's used when Noah built the ark uh, and they pitched it about with slime. It means to cover something, to smother something. But if you know your New Testament theology, you know that in the New Testament, there's a different idea that's given. It's not the idea of atonement or covering. In fact, the only time the word atonement is used, one time in the New Testament. But every other time, the idea is that of propitiation. Now, the word propitiation is a little different. Here's what it means. It means to cleanse or to take away. The idea, as the Hebrews writer says, is that in the shedding of uh, the uh, blood of animals in the Old Testament, that every year in those sacrifices, there was a remembrance made again of sins every single year. And he said this, that if the, if the offering of those uh, animals had made the comers there unto perfect, then would they not cease to have been offered. Now, uh, the Hebrews writer is pointing to the fact that those Old Testament sacrifices weren't sufficient to save a man because all they could do was cover sin. But a year down the road, that atonement would no longer be in effect and they'd be required to offer another one. And a year later, they'd offer another one. A year later, they'd offer another one. But that in the New Testament, it's not that He's covered our sins, but as the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He's done away with them now in the New Testament. And I stop and think about this. Back here when it's talking about our love, he uses that terminology of covering again. And it doesn't say that love will take away a multitude of sins. The Bible says love will cover a multitude of sins. Now why would that matter? Here's the reason. is because if you believe this could be the very last day that you live, you don't need everything fixed about that person. You just need enough love to treat them with the love of Christ through the rest of your days. Can I tell you, hey, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. There's going to be some people you're going to love and they're going to be the worst for it. There's going to be people that the more you love them, as the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, that the less they love you. But the reason that we love folks with a stretching love, the reason we love folks with an expanding love, with an elastic love, is because after all, this could be our very last day on this world. Could be the very next week, could be a month, could be 50 years, but 50 years ain't a long time. I'd long rather live a life showing them the love of God than instead live in selfishness or live in hatred or live in bitterness and let my last day be one of bitterness instead of blessings. I'd say if we really believe that, we'll love without limit. Number three, look at verse 9 with me. It says this, Use hospitality one to another without grudging. We ought to pray without playing around. We ought to love without limit. But then I'd say this, we ought to give without grudging. He uses the term hospitality. It means to bestow uh, benefit or advantage upon another person, to be hospitable, welcoming to them, to try to nurture them and to meet their needs. And he says that we as believers ought to live our life in such a way that we're ever seeking to meet the needs of other people. 
Then he says the reason we are, or the way in which we ought to do this is without grudging, without resentment, without disdain, without spite. What does he mean when he says this? Well, I want you to notice that first word in verse number 9. And I think this is interesting. He doesn't say have hospitality. He does not say show hospitality. That's not what he says, Brother Charlie. He says use hospitality one to another without grudge. Now, when the Bible tells you to use something, the implication, not just the Bible, but in any, uh, in, in any conversation, the implication is it's talking about something you already have. And it's saying you ought to employ or engage this thing in a certain manner. To say show would be to say to muster it up. To say find hospitality would be to say to take it from someone else. To say give hospitality might entail the idea of first gaining it to yourself. But when he says use hospitality, he's saying this, you have the potential to minister to others. Now put that potential to work. I would say this, the first thing he speaks of is using what we possess. Using what we possess. Now I'll go ahead and tell you exactly what he's talking about here. He's talking about that M-O-N-E-Y. He's talking about cash money. He's talking about using your resources to minister in the lives of others. Now it, it could be made application of many, many other things. But I would say this, if you and I believe that today could be our last day, if we believe that my, my goal is to die with an empty bank account. Somebody say amen. In fact, I wouldn't mind to be a little bit overdrawn. If we really believe the end's at hand, we really believe, man, this could be it. Christ could come back tomorrow. Then why would we want to lay up our treasure here instead of laying up our treasure in heaven? Now, that doesn't mean God desires for us to be impoverished. doesn't mean God resents a man having means. But it is to say this, that He gives us those means, not just so that we have means, but so that we have ministry. And He does these things in our life so that we can minister into the lives of other people. After all, here's what he's saying. I've given you certain things and now I expect you to use those certain things for my glory and for my service. Everything we have, we've been given from the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Uh, everything we've got, we've received of the Lord. We've not gotten it ourselves and of ourselves. I, we had a president uh, a couple terms ago that said, uh, whatever it was, you didn't build that. And his implication was government built it. I'm going to make that statement, but it's going to be a little bit different. Government didn't build it, but God sure enough did bless you with it, whatever it is. And his intention was the same that even the Bible's intention was. He was saying, you didn't build it, government did, so give it to government. But here's God's intention. He's saying, you didn't build it, I blessed you with it, so give it to God. And he's saying that, in other words, everything you have has been granted, has been bestowed upon you. And therefore, you ought to view it as though you are a steward of those things. Wouldn't it be sad for us to die with means, with wealth, with with all these things, with unspent ability, with unspent time, with unspent talents, if we really believe this is our last day, wouldn't you think we would spend all of it for the glory of God? So we ought to, he talks about using what we possess, but then number two, he talks about letting go of what is passing away. Why do we do it without grudging? Well, because it's passing away in the first place. When you're grudging something, you're resenting your loss of that thing. Uh, the I, I, I'm boy, I don't know. I don't know if I want to tell that story. We'll just let the Holy Ghost tell you that story when we get to heaven. But suffice it to say that in your life and mine, the reason we resent when we lose out on something is we believe that we had opportunity or we had means that no longer belongs to us in the first place. In other words, we're saying we had that thing that was ours. And now it is gone. How can we give without grudging? By recognizing that everything that we have is passing away in the first place. 
There's nothing temporal that you have that you're going to hold on to beyond the grave in the first place. You've heard this said, that you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, never seen one with a luggage rack. Everything you and I have is passing away. And can I, listen, I got news for you. If you're talking about like American currency, uh, you don't have to die for it to become worthless. That's happening increasingly. <laughs> How foolish would it be? And I think it was Jim Elliott that made the statement is, uh, uh, that no man is a fool to give up that which you cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. How foolish would it be for us to live our lives scurrying and scrounging and trying to build some kind of castle of sand that the tide of death is just going to wash away anyway? Wouldn't it be far better to spend and be spent for the glory of God and take all that we have and pour it into the work of the Lord? Give without grudging. Look at verse 10. He says this, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now I'm going to tell you, I do believe there is an immediate application of this. I think he is extending what he has said in verse number 9. When he talks about the gift, I think he's probably talking about monetary blessings in your life. When he talks about, and that's the reason he uses the term the manifold grace of God, because the grace of God looks like a lot of different things. It's true that the grace of God is the free pardon of salvation. It's been given through the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But there's a lot of things that are the grace of God that are not related to that. Hey, the air you breathe is the grace of God. The food in your refrigerator is the grace of God. The family that you love is the grace of God. The family you don't love is the grace of God. I, I, I'm saying there, it's manifold grace, not just one type of grace. There's lots of types of the grace of God. But I would say this, that there is within that application there's maybe a secondary thing we could say about it. He says you've received the gift, and he's probably talking about monetary, but we could really make application of that in regards to anything that God has done for us or given to us. The things that we use to serve God, our talents and time and treasures. He says this, even so minister the same one to another. Why do we do that? Well, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I'm going to say it this way. We ought to give without grudging, but we ought to serve without slacking. It's talking about using what God has enabled you with and, and serving others and serving God with it. We ought to take all of our time and pour it. Listen, we ought to be so busy about God that people that don't know God think we're fanatics about God. I really, I feel like we have taken this secular philosophy and concept of being a well-rounded human being. Let me tell you something. I'm well-rounded. It ain't all that it's cracked up to be. Amen? This idea of being well-rounded, of having these various different interests and hobbies and being good at this and being good at that. And I think that's just so wrong-headed from the perspective that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the notion of having singular purpose, singular passion, of living your life for a singular goal. And whatever other things may be involved, may be necessary. Hey, listen, you probably got to work on a public job. You probably got to take care of things at home. Ain't nobody telling you not to mow your yard. Ain't nobody telling you not to take the garbage out. You've got responsibilities. You've got duties. I've got duties. But we ought to never let those things eclipse or crowd out our singular purpose in life, which is to live for the glory of God and to serve Him to the greatest of our abilities. This idea of being this eclectic man of the world and, and having all these experiences and this and that, the world trumps that. Uh, but Paul said this, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He didn't say these 70 things I do. He said this one thing I do. One thing, singular in our goal, singular in our passion, singular 
in our purpose. What does he say here? He says, listen, if you really believe that this could be your very last day, you ought to get busy serving God. I heard one preacher say it this way, we better get busy because Jesus might come tomorrow. This could be our very last opportunity. What is it that prompts us to serve God with such single-minded focus? Well, notice he mentions two things. One, we're to do this in light of what is received. He says, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. The idea that everything that we have has been bestowed from God in the first place. And therefore, it is not ours to sit and roost atop. It is not ours to sit and hover upon. But rather, it is ours to employ and engage in the work of God. Again, I don't mean to just keep going back to the monetary thing. Uh, Listen, the Bible talks about money more than you or I am comfortable with. It talks about it a lot. But just using it as an illustration, using it symbolically, I would say this. Do you remember the parable that Christ told of the men that were given the talents? And a talent, of course, being a measure of monetary value at that time. And He gives these men these talents. And one man goes and he exchanges it and he uses it and he employs it. And he comes back and he brings back five talents. And another man goes and engages with it and and exchanges with it, uses it on the market of business, and comes back and gives ten talents. But there's that one old boy that took it, rolled it up in a napkin, and buried it in the ground. And you know what he found out? He found out inflation will kill you. Amen. (laughs) He takes it and digs it up and gives it back to his master and says, Here, I kept it safe. His master said, I didn't ask you to keep it safe. I asked you to do something with it. He said, at the very least, you could have given it to somebody else that would have done something with it. He said, what you have done is the worst possible thing you can do. For you did not yield it to someone else that do something with it. You instead roosted on top of it and kept it from ever producing anything. Boy, hey, listen, this this isn't my message tonight, but let me just say this. We ought to get busy serving God. And if we ain't going to serve God, we ought to get out of the way and let somebody serve God. I mean, we ought not just roost on top of the work of God. And, 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 and claw at people that want to engage with and want to get involved with the work of God. You say, well, preacher, what can I do? We ought to do something with it to the best of our ability. Time's short, man. We need to get busy with this thing. We need to get serious about it in light of what is received. But then notice the next phrase, in light of what is required. He says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Can I tell you, God is not only going to judge you in light of what you do with Calvary. He's going to judge you in a lot of what you do with everything He's blessed you with. Well, we're, we're awful hard on the lost man when we say to him, hey, one of these days, every sermon you've ever heard is going to be played back in your mind. We look at the lost man and say, one of these days, every opportunity that you have is going to be called to your attention. And you're going to have to give an account. You're going to have to give an answer that day. Well, let me tell you something, friend. I believe that about the lost man, but I believe it about the saved man too. Not just every uh, sermon, gospel sermon that a lost man hears, but every Bible sermon that a saved man hears. We are entrusted with truth and we are given a responsibility to to respond in obedience to it. One of these days, it's that manifold grace of God. Not that singular grace of God, that manifold grace. Not just the grace of Christ's cross at Calvary, but also the grace of the things God has bestowed upon us, the light He has given us of truth that we walk in, the opportunities to serve Him that He has granted unto us. All of these things we're going to be held accountable for. Why? Because we're stewards. We're stu- you're a steward of everything in your life. Not just your bank account, not just your children. You're a steward of everything in your life. So you know what we better do? We better serve without slacking. We better get serious about this thing and really pour our heart and life and time 
into the work of God. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, not only should we, let's, let's read them all. Not only should we pray without playing around and love without limit and give without grudging and serve without slacking, but I would say this. Look at verse 11 with me. It says this, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, for whom be praise, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I would say this, that we ought to walk without wandering. Now when I speak of our walk, I'm speaking of our Christian testimony, our Christian life, the way we live as a Christian. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, there's some things you ought to keep in mind. Number one, we ought to be careful in our conversation. He says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, what is the oracles? It's the dispensation of God. The term oracles of God is used uh, concerning Old Testament Scripture by Paul in the book of Romans. says, under the Jews were committed the oracles. In other words, the Word of God, the truth of God that's been given of God. And he says this, listen, we ought to make sure, if we really believe this could be our last day that we're walking on earth, we better make sure that the things that we're saying reflect the truth of the Word of God. We better make sure of what we're saying is not just personal opinion. And preference. We better make sure what we're saying uh, is not just political ranting. We better make sure what we're saying is meaningful, seasoned always with grace, seasoned always with the truth of the Word of God. You better make what you say count, because it could be the last thing you ever say. Could be the last opportunity. Wouldn't it be a shame for the very last day, the very last conversation that we have to be about nothing? instead of being about the truth of God. And of course, again, I don't believe God begrudges conversationalism. I don't think God begrudges uh, fellowship around things that maybe are of lesser importance. But inasmuch as we are seeking to be an influence in the world around us, we better make sure that the banner that we march under is the banner of the cross of Calvary. We better make sure that the soapbox we stand on is the truth of the Word of God. We ought to speak as the oracles of God. Not only ought we be careful about our conversation, but number two, we ought to be discerning in our duties. He says this, man, this hurts. He says, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. What I'm going to say is is hard truth, but I want you to hear it. If we really believe this is our last day, we won't waste time doing what we want to do. We'll waste time doing what we're good at doing. You know, there may be things that God uses you to do that is not your personal excitement. It's not what you'd call in your wheelhouse but God has given you an open door and an ability to do it. And you ought to, if you believe this is your last opportunity, you ought to get busy doing anything that God gives you an opportunity to do. He says, do it as of the ability that God ministers. In a great many churches, and I don't believe this is the case here at Wall Ridge, but in a great many churches, you get people that are fixated on certain ministries, uh, certain avenues, certain things, and irrespective of whether they have ability to do it or not, irrespective of whether God has opened a door for them to do it or not, they try to press themselves into that thing. I'll tell you one of the things, it's just it's just something that's good for you to know as a pastor. Most of the time, if the first time I ever meet someone, I've had this happen, I remember years ago, a lady came to church, her and her kids visited one time, and that was back before COVID when you talked to people. And uh, so uh, we went we went to the house, and, and I guess it was me and Dad or me and Carrie, somebody, we, we stood and we talked to her. And, and talked to her for a few moments, and she said, "Do you all do any ministry for homeless people?" And I and I wanted to say, "Well, some of our our people are pretty poor," <laughs> but I didn't. I, I said, "No, well, I mean, we don't particularly." She said, "I would love to go to a church that does homeless ministry." 
And uh, I said, well, ma'am, I mean, you know, we, we don't we don't do anything right now at this moment that engages. She said, would you be interested in me starting a homeless ministry if I came there? Can I tell you something that will 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 spook a pastor quicker than anything is when you start talking about wanting to start ministries in a church you, you don't belong to in things that you ain't engaged with and things that are not necessarily concerning you. Here's what she was saying. She was saying, this is my pet interest. So I want to get involved with it. Uh, many times, and listen, don't, don't take what I'm saying wrong. I understand that we all have interests. I understand that we all have things that we are excited about and things that we want to get involved in. But if this was my last day to serve God, if the only thing there was to do was sweep the floor, hand me a broom. If this is my last day to serve God, and the only thing there is left to do is, is, is to clean toilets, man, give me a scrub brush. If this is my last day to serve God, and the only thing there is to do is someone to get up and preach the gospel. Hey, blow that trumpet loud and sound it a law. I'm saying this, we'll be less picky and instead more surrendered about our service to the Lord. We all have things that we may enjoy, things that we may like. But if we really believe this is our last opportunity, we'll say, Lord, use me wherever there's a place to use me, in whatever capacity there is to use me. It may not be what I like. It may not be what I prefer. It may not be what I would choose or what I would pick out for myself. But this could be my last day to serve God. And I don't want to sit and pout on the couch because I don't get to do it my way. I instead want to get involved in the work of God. One final thing and I'm done. We ought to be careful in our conversation, discerning in our duties. But finally, we ought to be praising in our purpose. Why is this? Why do we do all of these things? What is the singular purpose and goal behind this? He says this, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If we believe this is our last day, and we're standing on the cusp of Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, we may be just a few short years, but Charlie, we may be a few short years we watched uh, last night and today, we watched the Taliban roll into Kabul and take control of Afghanistan. Hey, it, we may, Charlie, we may be seven years away from watching white horses ride into Jerusalem and set a throne up in, on, the, on Zion's hill. Can you imagine how close we are to them crowning the Lord Jesus? If we really believe that. If we really, and I believe that. I, I, I believe I believe that. I, I, I know it to be true. And I want my life to convey that I believe that. If I believe that to be true, that I'm that close to the King of Kings sitting on the throne, I want to make sure that everything in my life that I do reflects well upon Him. That I'm living in a way that is praiseful towards Him. I, I want everything to be about Him. I, I'd say this, we ought to be praising in our purpose. In everything that we do, it ought to not be about us, it ought to be about Him. We really believe that He's getting ready to part the eastern sky. We really believe that He's getting ready to come back. We really believe that we're just a few short years from Him setting the throne up in Jerusalem. Wouldn't you think that we'd want our whole life to be about Him? Now, you say you believe that, and I say I believe that. Here is the question. Does our life say what our lips say? If it doesn't, we ought to adjust our life to what we know we should be living and we ought to let God have the glory in our life. Let's bow our heads with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. The altar's open. If God touched your heart, come find a place down here deal with Him. I'd hate for the last time I had an opportunity to go to the altar. I said no because I was too prideful. I said no because I was scared of what somebody may think. Now listen, if God didn't deal with your heart, I'm not trying to twist nobody's arm, but if God dealt with you, 
Wouldn't it be a shame for the last altar call God ever gave you, you to say no to when God's dealing with your heart? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We, we love you and we ask it in His name.